Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be following up on two issues related to the murder of George Floyd. First, the passage by the House of Representatives in the United States Congress of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And second, the scandal resulting from the city of Minneapolis's use of public funds to hire a social media consultant for the trial of Derek Chauvin, the accused murderer of George Floyd. Then our third topic will be a look at the local increase here in central Ohio in internet crimes. In segment two, as promised, we'll be getting into part two of our look at protection orders in the state of Ohio with the discussion of the constitutionality of the ex parte aspect of those protection orders and how the standard of evidence applies when a full order can issue. To make sure that you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes and Spotify. You can find these episodes on all of our social media channels and look to the law office of BrianJones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news was this? Three, two, one. So Erica, did you see in the news this week that the United States House of Representatives passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and it is now headed over to the Senate for consideration? Yes, I did. And this is just such exciting news. I am so happy to hear about this. And I feel like it's going to have a much better chance of passing now because of all of the political changes. Brian, can you tell us what are the changes that the bill proposes? So this legislation would ban the use of chokeholds, it would ban no-knock warrants, it would require data collection on all police encounters with citizens, it would end qualified immunity, allowing citizens to hold law enforcement accountable for the harms that they cause. It would provide funding for community-based organizations to implement evidence-based practices like violence interruption and hospital-based violence intervention strategies that keep neighborhoods safe, keep police safe, and don't involve a police response to relatively minor um, civilian incidents. Now, everybody should be familiar with a lot of these terms because they're topics that we've covered in past episodes. And many of these changes would really start to reshape policing in America. A sweeping federal law would force change at the, at the state and local level and create greater equality in the enforcement of laws across the nation. So this, this bill proposes some major changes to how police and citizens interact and puts some sig significant protections in place for civilians who have been harmed by the police. I mean, I think it sounds absolutely incredible. And I know that in the past, there was a lot of opposition from people who maybe support the police and feel like it's taking something away from them. I mean, we have discussed a lot in the past about how it's actually adding and, and helping them with their jobs uh, to have the bad apples kind of taken out instead of given new jobs in another jurisdiction. So can you talk about like, what are the chances 
of this actually happening? So very similar legislation was introduced last year in the aftermath of George Floyd's homicide, but it failed in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Now the Democrats hold both the House and the Senate, although very slim margin in the Senate. So the bill has a significantly better chance of getting out of Congress and onto the president's desk. But as all things in politics go, you don't want to bet the farm on this. Public feeling on reform and the current makeup of the federal government puts this bill in its best opportunity to pass in a very long time. So I just gave some examples on who I think wouldn't be supporting this bill. Um, can you give us a rundown on who is really getting behind this bill and, and who is really excited about these changes? While there is a divide in the criminal justice reform movement between those who want to support uh, slower incremental changes and those who are really unsatisfied with this particular bill because it does not go far enough, um, it seems like both sides are getting together uh, to make sure that something rather than nothing happens. Uh, I would highly recommend the latest episode, the February 28th episode of Last Week Tonight with uh, John Oliver, where they had a searing breakdown of uh, police militarized raids and drug raids and a disturbing portrait of law enforcement in the United States. Erica, did you know that if the police kick in your door to search your house, and they didn't have a valid warrant for your house, they had a valid warrant for your neighbor's house, you are on the hook for replacing your own door. They don't ever have to pay you back for the damage that they do to your home, even though they screwed up. I mean, to me, that's absolutely amazing and in a bad way. And I mean, I can't even imagine if I did that to my neighbor's door that I wouldn't get sued later. Uh, for messing up someone else's property. How is this even possible? And prosecuted for burglary. Exactly. How is it possible? Well, it, it, that is that is qualified immunity at its most uh, insignificant level. Uh, the police have that qualified immunity and unless you can show recklessness um, or gross disregard for the policies and procedures of their department, it's gonna be really hard to bust through that shield that they have of qualified immunity. Police basically get, get away with, well, I mean, we've seen it, murder in America because of that doctrine. Now, among ardent supporters of, of police and proponents of Homeland Security, you're also gonna find significant opposition to this bill. Uh, you know, the National Association of Prosecutors and anybody who doesn't want to limit the powers of law enforcement because they love authoritarian dictatorships. Now, we're going to track this bill's progress and monitor the state legislation that follows it, that hopefully, even if this can't get on President Biden's desk, some states will pick up the seeds that are being sown here and run with them and, and really move the ball forward on criminal justice reform. I think it's exciting progress. And what I love most about it is that we have done this topic on similar on, on earlier shows where we specifically talked about qualified immunity 
and why it should go away. So this is amazing news. I'm really excited to see if this can go through and if we can see some real change in this area happen. Here's hoping that there is. Now, one of the things that's really driving this legislation, obviously it's, it's, it's named after George Floyd, uh, but George Floyd's murder case is now on the eve of trial. We are mere weeks away from what is supposed to be the trial of Derek Chauvin. And Minneapolis officials have finally eliminated a plan to hire a social media influencer to support Derek Chauvin uh, during the course of his trial. Did you see this in the news this week, Erica? Yeah, I mean, I was wondering how that works because I thought that when you have a trial, you're not supposed to have outside influences like this. I mean, I guess I've never heard of it happening this way before. So I'm excited to hear your explanation and how this is working for this particular trial. I mean, what was the city's plan in using these social media influencers? So the city had proposed to pay six social media influencers up to $2,000 each to spread information during the trial targeting Black, Native American, Somali, Hmong, and Latinx communities. Once local media got wind of the plan and shared the story, the public outrage was extreme. And the response caused the city to cancel the plan and issue an apology, claiming that these individuals would not have been tasked with influencing the public, but instead communicating things like lane closures and security alerts. Now, we are going to join the citizens of Minnesota in our skepticism of that explanation, as the state has ample resources, including highway signs, local media, radio, television, and a variety of other sources to deliver notices of security changes in the area. I mean, Erica, as you're driving down the highway, do you want the giant electronic sign over the road to tell you that there's a lane closure overhead? Or do you wanna to have to hop on Instagram to find the latest influencer, uh, you know, putting, uh, doing a makeup tutorial and telling you, oh, by the way, the, uh, the I-70 lane, uh, the the I-70 westbound is uh, going to go a little slow this morning. I mean, I can't imagine that that would be very effective, especially, as you said, you're driving along and, and you're not even supposed to be on your phone. I can't imagine that that's going to help out. It was obviously just a sad excuse for what they were really trying to do. So can you dig into a little bit more about you know, why this is so controversial, besides it obviously being a, a scam to try to control the public's opinion? Well, it, it's a shameful attempt by the city to you know, blame these minority communities um, for their choices by claiming that they were going to give them uh, you know, more information about the case. Uh, you know, when an authority like the government, in particular, the city government that is exposed to millions of dollars in liability for this officer's actions, pays somebody to push a particular narrative. It's not news. It's not journalism. It's called propaganda. And you know, we in America really frown on uh, our, our government 
proselytizing propaganda at us. The optics of this make it look as if the city is more concerned about salvaging its reputation and that of its honestly beleaguered uh, law enforcement agencies rather than focusing on the needs of the community through resources like town halls, trauma counselor availability, support groups, and programming that would address the pain that this community has experienced um, rather than try and trick them uh, out of experiencing what they have gone through. Remember, Erica, George Floyd was only the latest victim of the Minneapolis Police Department. This particular agency has had repeated incidents of excessive use of force uh, to the point that the city was, um, you know, honestly under siege with the number of lawsuits it was facing and the number of officers it had on its payroll that had just massive complaint files and, and for violent offenses as well. Now, the city is already preparing a militarized response with multiple agencies to set up borders and create an intimidating presence to discourage planned protests that are uh, coming up for the trial um, in, in their entirety. And, and so the, really this, the entire government of the Minneapolis area is taking this in the exact wrong way. You know, why is this decision controversial? Well, the government has taken an authoritarian position rather than being responsive um, and, and acting like stewards of the public trust like they should in a situation like this. I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's shameful and it's, it's just not the right thing to do. And you would think that government officials would be there to set a good example for the public. I mean, that's why they get elected. We all trust them to make great decisions. And unfortunately, this is not a great decision. So, I mean, when we're looking at this, what kind of lessons do you take from this situation? I mean, I know they're probably not taking the lessons from it, but, but we'd love to know, um, you know, what can we learn going forward? What, what should they do differently? Well, let's give kudos where it's deserved. The city has eliminated the plan. So good on them for that. Let's hope what they take away from this is an understanding that using social media influencers to change public opinion surrounding a criminal trial is, is unethical and honestly dangerous. Um, it's, it's tantamount to you know, jury tampering, you know, really bordering on that. Uh, you know, social media has a disproportionate impact on criminal prosecutions in particular, from the sharing of an accused person's mugshots to joke posts from law enforcement agencies to the ranting and raving of commenters or news stories discussing the case, calling for the murder of the accused. You know, let's hang him, draw him, and quarter him, and whatnot. The conversation online has the power to shape ideas and the understanding of potential jurors. It doesn't matter how extreme that content is and what the source of it is. You know, it's, it's easy in a rational discussion to say, oh, well, I don't follow that, but it influences people. That's why they're called influencers. Now, anybody that's accused of a crime needs to have an attorney that is savvy enough 
to delve into this public forum that is social media and have a plan in place to address pre-trial and trial publicity to try and push back against that taint that that social media and the mob mentality uh, can really create. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. And we do, we talk about this all the time where somebody gets accused of something and they, you know, it goes out to social media and it ruins them before um, they even get a chance to stand a trial. I mean, this is a very similar situation. We're trying to have a fair trial, trying to make some changes. It looks like the city is trying to sour the public opinion before a fair trial has happened. It, it does. It, the, the optics of this, even if it wasn't their intent, the optics of it are terrible. And let's be honest, when you're running a public relations campaign, either a traditional campaign through traditional media or through social media, uh, through a, a, a new age public relations campaign, the optics matter and the optics of this were terrible. So you know, let's hope that, that Minneapolis and other cities across the nation have learned their lesson here. Now, Erica, did you see in the news this week, Columbus's Internet of Crimes Against Children Task Force has seen a 130% increase in tips of alleged sexual impropriety online. I have, and I can only imagine what this means. I mean, we've all been home with COVID, so I'm sure people are on social media a lot more, but I, I'm just wondering if you could give us a little bit more of an explanation on what the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force is and, and what it does. ICAC is a national network of 61 coordinated task forces that represent over 4,500 federal, state, and local police and prosecutorial agencies. It coordinates with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a, a national agency that receives tips about child abuse. Now, locally, ICAC is made of representatives from local and federal law enforcement agencies who are assigned to the unit to conduct investigations as members of the task force rather than working for their individual jurisdictions. So you've got like a Franklin County Sheriff's Office working with an FBI agent as part of the ICAC task force. Now, the results of these investigations are frequently submitted to local prosecuting attorneys and some are referred to federal assistant United States attorneys for prosecution. Wow. I mean, thanks for explaining that. So, I mean, I can only imagine what some of the crimes are, but if you could give us a list of the types of crimes that are reported through this agency. Most frequently, you're talking about sexual offenses, soliciting illegal use of minors in uh, pornography, pandering obscenity, displaying material that's harmful to juveniles, so sharing uh, pornography with a juvenile, some custody offenses, interference with custody, kidnapping, unlawful restraint, you know, sort of parental disputes about who's entitled to have the kid today, and then it goes up on social media, and um, you know, those sorts of things are investigated. And then social media offenses, frequently sexting between minors, cyberbullying, things of that nature. So we've all seen those shows where a cop or, you know, someone posing to be a child gets online and you know baits people that are adults and then they meet them at the house i mean 
I, I don't know why there's so much more reporting going on, but is, is it something along those lines? What do you think? Earlier you said, you know, we've all been locked down for 12 months now. Um, and, and I think the results of the pandemic, a lot of kids are home and everybody's spending double, triple the amount of time online that they were about a year ago. I think it's the same story for adults. You know, as a result of the pandemic, uh, many people are spending additional time online and have very minimal outlet for social contact, romantic pursuits. Um, you know, and, and officers are the same way. They're having a field day pretending to be teenagers in online spaces like Kick, Meet Me, Facebook, Gab. You know, it is dangerous to engage in sexual conversations online, not only because you don't know who is actually receiving the message, but also because once you put something out online, you lose total control over where and how that information spreads. Images, the textual conversation, that can all be recorded, screenshotted, and broadcast in ways that you may not be aware of at the time that you send it out there. I have seen multiple cases uh, of situations where photographs are inserted into the middle of text conversations that weren't there originally. Um, additional lines are added to text conversations to make it look like uh, an individual was communicating with a minor when they actually weren't. Um, and, and the use of individuals' photos, you know, their uh, you know, sexual photos, their nude photos, um, as, as a way to blackmail, embarrass, and extort them. So I would, you know, if I've said it on this show once, I've probably said it a dozen times, Erica, social media is not a place that you want to uh, is spend a large chunk of your time. You know, it, it started as, as a place where we could share little bits and pieces of our lives. Uh, and we have gone entirely too far in sharing the most intimate details of our lives through this medium. Uh, and it is, it is a place with a thousand, uh, a, a thousand quicksand pits that you can get sucked into and pulled down in and you, know, you may never get out. Oh, I know. And you hear the scary things that happen over and over again. And you hear about people that are angry about a breakup. And so then they're doing revenge porn on you. And maybe you videotaped sex or you have pictures of that ex-lover and you decide to get angry and post at places where that's allowed. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really scary. I mean, you think that you're with someone and you trust them, then all of a sudden this stuff happens. Well, you're exactly right. And, you know, one of the easiest ways for those exes to get back at you is by filing a civil protection order. And Erica, I've, I've got to thank you for that beautiful segue into segment two today. Due process and, and notice are fundamental rights guaranteed to everybody by the United States Constitution. So let's explore today how that squares with the idea of an ex parte a one-on-one -on -one where you are excluded hearing between your accuser and the judge deciding your case, where by definition, the only person in there is the person accusing you and the judge. How is that legal in our system? 
Wow. I was just going to say that. <laughs> that. That sounds horrible. I mean, hey, I've got a child and when the kids get in a fight, we actually talk to both of them right there. And we talk about what happened and we get both sides of the story and we, uh, it, it, we kind of hash things out. I can't even imagine that in a court of law with adults that someone can just say whatever they want and the person being accused maybe didn't do anything and yet there's a hearing about them and they may not even know what's happening. So if you could give us just a little information about an ex parte hearing and why the heck would it be allowed? So the, the foundational constitutional guarantee is found in the Fifth Amendment, that we will not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It's guaranteed to us through the Constitution as well by the 14th Amendment, which applies that and guarantees due process of law through the states. Now, this is a foundational feature of our constitutional system. And fair notice and the opportunity to be heard when your rights are being affected is critically important. You, know, you cannot just be hauled off, thrown in a black cell, never to be released. That is not something that can happen in America. They can't come to your house and take all your stuff without giving you the chance to argue back for it in court. But there's also a belief that in some situations, notice to concerned parties would work harm on a victim, such in the case of domestic violence or sexual assault. And in those situations, the threatened party can receive what's called an ex parte hearing to request temporary relief with no notice to the person being accused and their presence is excluded. Uh, I've actually had situations where the accused person found out the ex parte hearing was gonna happen and they showed up and, and the court said, you cannot come in here. Uh, they wanted to have their full hearing right then and there and, and that was not allowed. Ex parte hearings are reserved only for urgent matters not just domestic violence. It can also be restraining orders against construction in a particular area, media access, and a variety of other rights. This isn't an unheard of uh, procedure in our system of uh, jurisprudence. The key feature of an ex parte order is that it must be accompanied by a hearing notice and must be limited to a short time frame. In Ohio, the law says an ex parte civil protection order must go to a full hearing within 10 days of the ex parte order. It's seven days if the person that is targeted by the ex parte order is going to be evicted from their home. And a unique feature of these orders is that they must be served on the respondent to be effective. So the respondent has to receive physical copies of these papers in order for them to have any force of law. So until that respondent receives the order in their hands, they can't be punished for anything they do that might be prohibited under the order. So it's allowed because there is this, this exceptional belief that in some circumstances, giving notice to the other party can cause harm to the petitioner or um, that, that the time frame in place is so critical. We just don't have time to get a full hearing going. Wow. I mean, 
you can kind of see both sides of the story there, except that a lot of the people are falsely accused, especially in cases of divorce where there's an ulterior motive of, of money and, and um, children. And it's, it seems like something that should be considered. So I guess if the person's crying wolf, you just kind of find out about it later, which is, is too bad for the person that is all of a sudden homeless. So what should you do if this happens to you when you get an ex parte order? First and foremost, read the order carefully. If you receive one of these orders, you can be removed from your home. You can't go in and get your stuff. You're not going in to get clothes. You're not going in to get your cell phone charger. You're just out. And you may be ordered to continue to pay rent. You may be ordered to continue to pay the electricity, the gas, the water bills, all the utility payments. You may be prohibited from taking certain people or being in certain places. And that's enforceable by, a, by the criminal code. So if you violate the order, uh, you will be arrested immediately and you will be taken to jail and you will not get out of jail until you see a judge. Civil and uh, criminal protection orders can and will eliminate your Second Amendment rights for a period of time. So you can be forced to turn over your guns either to law enforcement or to a third party for safekeeping. Um, the next important thing is you've got to identify the hearing date, and that's going to be on the ex parte order. And you got to make plans to attend. Last and not least, I recommend that you contact a criminal defense attorney. Uh, these orders are very akin to criminal allegations. Standard of proof is different. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but it's the same type of defense. And many criminal defense attorneys have experience defending civil protection order allegations and know very well trial procedure. Now, it's important to note that an ex parte order may not issue in some situations, but that doesn't mean the civil protection order fails altogether. It just means that a full hearing will be set and there are no temporary orders in place while the, uh, while the issue is litigated through the court. So how do they decide in this hearing if one of these orders should be issued? I mean, because it's just them and, and the person that's accusing. I'm just wondering if there's some kind of a checklist. Erica, this is one of my biggest gripes about civil protection orders. Because they are civil protection orders that have serious criminal consequences if they're violated, they are still judged by the civil standard, which is preponderance of the evidence. What is preponderance of the evidence? Well, it's 50 and any insignificant amount percent more. 50.001 percent more believable that the claim is true causes the issuance of that civil protection order. This is a significantly lower standard than that of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is required for a criminal conviction. It's lower than clear and convincing evidence, which is a standard kind of in between preponderance and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But that's the standard that uh, you have to reach in order to have somebody's children taken away. And in a lot of these cases, children are taken away. So I think that is, you know, if we're not going to go to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is an incredibly high standard, I can understand that. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. 
we should at least be using the clear and convincing evidence standard. Um, you know, because we are placing significant restrictions on people's constitutional rights. I mean, I feel like I know the answer to this because I feel like anytime there's even a hint of a criminal accusation that you should immediately call Brian Jones <laughs> if you're in if you're in this area, um, but you should have an attorney that is skilled in these issues, right? So can you cover this yourself and not have an attorney if there is a civil protection order issued or like, what do you think the pros and cons are? Well, you can, you can absolutely represent yourself. I, I suppose you could probably also perform your own brain surgery, but it's probably not a good idea. Now, a civil protection order allegation doesn't come with a constitutional right to an appointed attorney, but they have significant impacts on your constitutional rights, your liberty, your freedom, um, and your property can be taken away from you. Now, because they often rise in tandem with other legal proceedings, custody, divorce, domestic violence, or sexual assault allegations, I think a coordinated strategy among every attorney that you've got involved is, is efficient, it's strategic, and it's necessary to make sure that your rights are protected. Can you do this on your own? Absolutely. You can do anything in the court system on your own. You're allowed to do that but you're held to the standard of a lawyer. Now, if you are gonna try and do this on your own, I strongly recommend that you go to your local law library and you start reading up on civil protection orders. There are entire volumes that are dedicated to defending these sorts of cases. You better start your reading, you better learn your courtroom procedure, you better learn your rules of evidence because you're gonna be held to that standard. Can you do it? Absolutely. Is it gonna be a ton of work? Also, absolutely. Now, because the civil protection order inherently prohibits certain contact, an attorney might be the only way to fully investigate the allegations, to identify witnesses and to secure evidence. So, you know, even if you do decide to do it on your own, you're probably gonna be doing it with one arm tied behind your back. Um, but I would, I would strongly recommend at minimum a consultation with an attorney. And, and definitely make sure you hit up your local law library and do your research before you walk in. Do not just consent to one of these orders because the consequences can last for years. I mean, that sounds like super scary. <laughs> so I'm happy that you're available for people in Ohio. I, I will say that uh, you know, the one time I had to see an attorney was for a divorce. And when I went in, I was shocked at what I didn't know. And I'm sure that you know something like this is a hundred times more serious that they are going to walk away from the consultation with a strategy, a direction, and realizing that they need an attorney for this because the repercussions of your life, if you don't do this the right way, like you said, they can last years, but if the trial doesn't go your way, if it gets to that, your life could be completely ruined. That's exactly right, Erica. And you know, you don't know what you don't know until you find it out. And what you don't want to have happen is walking into court and being surprised by procedure, rules, um, 
you know, having to go up against a trained and experienced attorney when so many liberty interests are on the line. I appreciate you engaging in this conversation and everybody who watched our show today and listened on uh, Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts, thank you. I appreciate you joining me. And I wanna remind you that if you wanna become more informed about how the government is participating in the defense of homicidal cops, holding police and the government accountable for their misdeeds, civil protection orders, and everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, check out the law office of brianjones.com or find our social media channels, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and at TLOBJ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can find all of our information on all of these media sources. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a discussion of the rights of juveniles who have been accused of sexual misconduct. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do, kid. And to that, with all of my friends today, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.